You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This man, take a good look at him. He's a specialist. He knows exactly how to turn this quiet town into a hell of violence. The Negroes will literally, and I do mean literally, control the South. Are you willing to fight down to the last ditch and keep fighting till this thing is over? The intruder. He made the sleepy town of Caxton his town for his reason. He played on their fears and their hatreds. This town became a headline for the intruder. He brought an end to innocence. He exploited a woman's weakness. He turned neighbor against neighbor. How come you walk that bunch of black niggers to our white school? I don't see anything I do as any business of yours. And sooner or later it would happen. He would make it happen. Over here. You are alone with a white girl in the basement of the school. But you didn't try to do anything. Is that what you expect us to believe, nigger? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Elric Kane. I'm honored to return for such a patriotic day. Also with us this week is Mr. Chris Statue. Oh, there, Mike. Elric and Mike, I'm hoping that we can be friends. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at the 1962 film from Roger Corman, The Intruder. The film stars William Shatner as Adam Kramer, a stranger who comes to a southern town of Caxton, a town on the brink of school integration. Kramer is there to stop integration, or, moreover, he's there to stir up trouble. The film was written by Charles Beaumont, who based the screenplay on his own novel of the same name. It is a remarkable and disturbing film that demonstrates how a demagogue can rise to power by stoking the fires of fear and hatred. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. So, Elric, when was the first time that you saw The Intruder, and what did you think? Uh, I think I saw it. It's one I didn't grow up with. Uh, you know, I was very familiar with Roger Corman's exploitation films, and I think it was right after I saw the documentary about Corman, and they had a little chapter in there that uh, really piqued my interest and made it look like a you know just so different than the rest of his filmography. And so it was probably maybe two years ago when I finally tracked it down, which also wasn't easy at the time. It was, it was really difficult to find a copy of it uh, a couple years ago. And, uh, you know, really, it, it amazed me. I, I couldn't believe that Corman had made that film in a way. It's it's literally a you know Italian neorealist film shot on the streets, well, what it looks like, the Deep South. And it's, it really knocked my socks off, but uh, I have to say not as much as rewatching it for the show. How about you, Chris? 
Let me be honest here, Mike. Um, pretty much everything I've ever been on this podcast for, I've never seen before, which is a good thing. Uh, it brings kind of a, a little bit more of a, a different uh, look at it. But uh, I watched it today for the first time. And if I had watched this movie two years ago, probably would not have really done a whole lot for me. Watching it today? Holy shit. I'm not the kind of person who is a doomsayer or likes to stoke the fires of radicalism. That's just not who I am. But this movie, ahead of its time, hits the nail on the head, makes me see the acting abilities of Shatner in a different light, which that's a that's a pretty big deal as someone who's a huge fan of the original Star Trek series. And it's completely unlike any other Roger, Roger Corman film that I have seen. It is it's a completely fearless. Yeah, it's a nuanced look at racism in the South. And when I say that, you wouldn't think Roger Corman when I talk about this kind of film you wouldn't think well that's a roger corman film that's not what roger corman i mean he's known for exploitation but i wouldn't say that this is even like an exploitation film this is a a cold hard look at the united states of america and the state of racism in the 60s and i did uh one thing that i didn't realize at the time it's shot and filmed in 62 it's about six 1960 and segregation laws weren't you know passed and uh anti-segregation wasn't passed till 64 so he's making it right in the heart of the storm. It's unbelievable, actually. It, it, watching it now with, when you start really researching the film. So I'm really glad I, I'm, I'm doing this episode because it kind of pushed me to go a little deeper with it. And seeing that, you're just like, Jesus. Especially for a guy who's, you know, from Beverly Hills. Roger Corman lives in Beverly, you know, always lived in Beverly Hills. And, you know, it's a pretty radical film to make. I saw this one, I'm going to say about 17, 18 years ago. I had picked it up on VHS. And I was doing a, uh, after I saw this and I saw the incubus and I had happened across one called impulse, I decided to write a piece for cashiers to cinema called I Shatner, where I talked about the three I films that were in his filmography and just how amazing and amazingly different those films are. I mean, impulse is pure unhinged, crazy Shatner where he's doing all these great, and he's like biting on his pinky and he's murdering people and just you know he's this this absolutely crazed and then incubus is this beautiful art film shot in esperanto that looks (laughs) like it was done by bergman and then intruder just yeah completely floored me i had never seen shatner give a performance like this and there are certain moments where you're just like okay that's kind of a shatner-esque thing but he pulls it off so wonderfully in this and he uses all of those those abilities that he has like in order to play the nice guy in order to to play the demagogue i mean he is pitch perfect at every moment in this film and again to chris's point you think roger corman you think bill shatner you're thinking like what bloody mama and these kind of movies but you're not thinking of what this was and as i'm watching this and as i'm seeing like the fire from a burning cross as a as a superimposition behind shatner's face and just the glee in his eyes uh, that his plans are all coming together I'm just like, wow, you got to be kidding me. How have I not seen this movie before? So I'm hoping that through this podcast, and I've succeeded, I guess, with Chris, but I'm hoping through this podcast that we can get more people to see this movie because it is just remarkable. 
And mind you, it's on YouTube. So you don't even have it's like this is like minimal effort watching. I mean, if you're going to sit in on YouTube and watch videos of cats skateboarding or dogs, you know, eating bowls of cereal at the table like a human, you could take time out of your busy schedule in quotations to watch something like this that actually it, it really does a good job of except for the ending, which I think is a little rushed. It does a really good job of letting people know who are watching it the risks of allowing someone like Shatner's character in the film, Adam Kramer, to take a hold of people. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Yeah, maybe we'll get more. Uh, it'll get more views if we change to one of the alternate names, like "I hate your guts." Because in the current climate, that could go down well. I actually thought of a, another good AKA, because another one of the titles is hate speech. But I was thinking, maybe we need to go with White Lash. I will say that I got this as a Christmas gift this year because I wanted to see the extras that are on the disc. And of, of all things, it was put out by Buena Vista. I'm like, what the hell? When I'm watching the opening and it's this commercial for how great Blu-rays are, I'm watching this on DVD, but it's one of these like, you need to upgrade, you need to get Blu-rays. And it's all these these clips from Disney films. I'm just like, what the hell's going on? Then finally I realized it's put out by Buena Vista. I have to say, now the DVD was only about $5 that my mom paid for it to give it to me as a gift. She was kind of ripped off because the quality of the DVD is terrible, absolutely terrible. The VHS copy that I have of this, I remember being a better transfer than what's on this DVD. It just looks bad. And I think that the one that's out on YouTube looks either as good, if not better, than the version that I have on DVD. I do not like to encourage people to go to a quote-unquote free streaming service when it comes to something like this. I would encourage people to actually purchase the movie, but we I think we're going to have to wait until this thing gets a better transfer, if it ever is going to get a better transfer, because, you know, to your point, Elric, this is one of the few flops in Corman's career. I mean, this is like, you know, I, I first ran across this movie when I was reading How I Made 100 Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime. This is the one that he almost lost a dime on because once it was done, you know, it wasn't that expensive to make, even though he, he plunked his own money into it. And once it was done, nobody wanted to show this. Nobody wanted to show it. Nobody wanted to see it. It was a really tough sell, and it's still eighty grand. It was like eighty grand, and I think uh, sometimes when people say you're ahead, well, we all just said he's ahead of his time. I think sometimes when you're like right on time or a little ahead of your time, no one wants to see that. It's such a painful uh, mirror. You know, no one wants to see. Uh, you know, a lot of these foreign directors whose films go to the festivals every year are really unpopular in their own country. <laughs> They'll make films that are slow paced or you know very political, but no one wants to see it in Hungary. <laughs> you know, but in America, we're like, oh great, a Hungarian film. I feel the same about this movie. It feels like no. No one wanted to see that. What they want is also drive-in era. It's not a drive-in movie. No, definitely not. And it's still uncomfortable today. I mean, we start off with Shatner. You know, we, we start off actually looking at the, the fields, and we see these workers in the fields. And, of course, all the workers are black. And we're looking at them through the window of a bus. And then we see Shatner sitting in the bus, and he's wearing these dark sunglasses. He comes into town. He kind of you know, has this little interaction with this little girl helping her off the bus and stuff. 
And then pretty much once he gets in there, he goes over to this cab driver and he's just like, You know where Nigger Town is? Yes, sir. You take me there? What the fuck? Hearing Shatner say that, I mean, wow. And then to hear how often they drop the N-word in this movie, here in 2017, my skin was crawling watching this. I couldn't believe it. And to hear such a beloved figure like Shatner saying it up and down, I'm like, oh, wow, I wanted to crawl under my seat. I think it's because, like, the way, you know, Tarantino and Spike Lee and people use it in a way that, in a contemporary way where it's kind of neutralized. And as viewers, I don't, I don't ever take it on. Like, I've never really been offended or even really noticed. I would understand if someone was. But this is the first film. Every time somebody says it, it feels like they mean it. <laughs> they lived it. And that's, it's pretty scary. It feels kind of like a knife every time. It cuts a little. That's exactly the word that I was thinking was it felt like somebody just slipping a knife between your ribs when you watch it. It's just like, ah. Uh, man, really? You gotta go there? But they go there, and they mean it. Yeah, everybody in this film means it. And it's funny, because there are a lot of real, you know, there's a lot of actors in here, but there are a lot of locals as well. And it's just like, how 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 informed were they? And it doesn't sound like they were informed very much when it came to the making of this film. How much did they believe what Shatner was saying versus how much were they acting? Yeah, they had to hide a lot of it. More to the point about the use of the N-word. The the first use of the N-word comes into the film like three minutes in. I wasn't expecting it at all. And it was so shocking. And I I can imagine if, if someone who is more offendable than I am would be watching this film in 2017 now, they would probably think that this is like the worst thing that they've ever seen. Because it's it's Shatner saying these things. You're not expecting William Shatner to say this, and he and he means it every time he means it in this film. He is his character is the absolute just one of the worst, and he's such a slime bag. But at the same time, he's he's a cowardly slime bag, which makes him even worse of a character. He really had to kiss Uhura those years later to make up for this. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, there's some real symmetry to that. <laughs> the sins of the intruder are finally washed away. <laughs> but I, I'll tell you one thing that crossed my mind, because I know we've talked, this is dropping inauguration day and the, the political climate of this movie, uh, how it kind of, how watching this movie now through a different lens really changes the movie because we're projecting on. And that sequence you just talked about where he drives, he's coming into town, he's seeing the workers in the field, then it reveals to be his point of view that we've been watching. He gets off the bus, everything's kind of perfect in this town, everything, he walks in and sees this girl in the soda bar. You know, it's very Leave it to Beaver. I kept thinking, you know, this is the America that Trump has been talking about. Let's make America great again. Let's turn back the clock. This is the vision of that. The, the, the way that people are in their correct roles. And that's and it, it was instantly, right off the top of the movie, that was the first thing I kind of saw. And it's, you know, that to me is a really, you know, terrifying back, backwards vision. Yeah, we've got the black people are in one part of town with a horrible name. And if they're not up there, they're out working in the fields and everything is so apple pie and mom and pop inside of the town. Yeah, the L uh, McDonald or Ella, I should say, McDonald, working as a soda store. It's just, yeah, it's so ideal. It's like, oh, wow, isn't this wonderful? No, it's not. And then that he can come into town and just start to prey upon 
everyone and the way that he manipulates so many of the people in the town i mean that that's what this whole movie is about is the way that he manipulates people and the thing that always gets me though is at the end of the day he really has nothing to gain other than power and the respect of these people that he is trying to that he's successfully manipulating because he's not really making money off of it and he's not really gaining anything other than the respect i guess or really he's just gaining the power and the ability to stir up the crowds i assumed that he was like somebody's lackey or crony in washington they definitely i think they do allude to he he never says where he's coming from who he works for but it i definitely picked that up too right like i assume that he is like some sort of like he's sent by someone who has a vested interest in this town or this particular area of the world not taking to segregation or desegregation. It, yeah, it's a last minute uh, white lash to try to turn around for that second. You know, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, we didn't even mention how he looks. And I think that's one of the things that makes this movie, like to me, especially because it's in stark black and white. And he comes in and his suit's almost glowing, you know, white suit, perfect hair, sunglasses. And so this is like setting up a guy who is not one of the people of anyone. He looks like the time. stereotypical devil. Yeah. Like when you think about the devil in the white suit, like that's and he's got that. I mean, like Shatner in all of in all of the success that he has as the charismatic character of Kirk in Star Trek, when he turns it around the other way, it's really successful as the charismatic snarling villain in this film. He's got a shit eating grin. (laughs) Are you talking about Mirror Mirror? Yeah. How dare you, Mike? (laughs) Let's not bring that up. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> but you know he really he's the one percent entering and seducing 99 percent. he's got that shit eating grin he gives the uh landlady you know she yeah. she says and that smile you're just like oh this is all too familiar it's like, it's almost a little painful to watch right now you know and i was surprised no one said anything when i in the intro when i said oh i hope we can be friends that's like that's what he says to everybody i hope we can uh, be yeah. friends like oh my god like, ugh. It threw me a little bit rewatching it this time, and as soon as the proprietor of the hotel where he's staying at, as soon as she starts to talk, I'm just like, oh, that's June Foray's voice. Like, I could immediately hear some of the characters from uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle coming out of this lady's mouth, and I was just like, wow, this is this is a pretty obvious dub, but it's even more obvious when it's a familiar voice coming out of her mouth. Go on up to 104 and get it aired out. I swear I believe that boy's got nigger blood in him somewhere. <laughs> you don't have to go to all this trouble. It won't take a minute. Oh my God, I suppose you're a salesman. You might say I'm in social work. I've come to do what I can for the town. The integration problem. Oh, that. But that's all over. I mean, they've got ten niggers enrolled already in the schools. And they're starting Monday. Yes, I know. Uh, do you think it's right? No. I sure don't. Neither does nobody, but it's the law. Who's law? Oh, we're living in a terrible age, people. I imagine, again, probably a local or somebody, you know, who just really didn't have the acting chops, so they had to voice over her. I love that the other people, because you don't really see anybody else at the hotel, even though you, you probably think that there's a lot of people staying there, but the, the other people that we see are Sam and Vi Griffin, and Sam is a salesman. So it's very interesting that of all 
the people for us to meet at that hotel that it's basically somebody who is in the exact same profession as Adam Kramer, even though Adam Kramer wouldn't call himself a salesman, but he is, he's there to basically sell this story and to sell this hatred. And I love that it's a fellow shyster that is is able to see through him. And I love the way that Sam plays him through this film there's a scene about midway through this movie that just it's wonderful to see the dynamic of these two actors going at it and it's just one of those scenes where you're just like this should be taught in acting class because this is one of those great moments where we have these dynamics going on where Kramer thinks he has the upper hand but it's really Sam that has the upper hand and I really appreciate that yeah, it's like if somebody can truly see through you. It doesn't matter who's holding a gun. It's who can re- if you can really see through somebody's bullshit, you've got them. And the other major characters I mentioned, Ella McDonald, who is uh, the young girl in town. Who um, and we'll talk more about the the novel as we go on. But um, in the novel, she is a much bigger character than she is in the movie. Though she does have a very nice role in here, and she is. Kramer's way to get in and really it's his way to get into the youth you know he met he's what uh, early he's supposed to be early 20s I think Shatner's playing him a little bit older than that which I think works so it almost makes it a little creepier in the way that the way that he's manipulating Ella there's a lot of men women combinations in this film and in this case the woman is Ella and the man in this case is Tom McDonald her father who runs the newspaper and he's the only other person really that seems to be standing up to Kramer and it's also pretty creepy the relationship between Kramer and Ella because she is like they make a point to say that she's in high school you go to school around here uh-huh I didn't know they had a college in Caxton oh they don't you don't go to high school, do you? Mm-hmm. My, my, they do grow things fast here, don't they? And then later in the film, they're, like, making out in the older white gentleman's car. Like, what is going, like, it's just... Well, and he's there to preach more morality, you know? And right, it, yeah, that's my, yeah. That great term, uh, you know, he's a moral relativist, you know, when it suits him. <laughs> he's moral, moral, you know, it's, he's seducing an underage teen, like, uh, you know, there's stories about other people doing. Like a 13-year-old? I felt like that scene, it's a good scene, but for me, it didn't, it didn't need to be there because I already understood that he was a scumbag. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I think they really just want to show you how much of a scumbag this guy is. They want to further solidify that he is a terrible person. If Ivanka weren't my daughter, perhaps I'd be dating her. You know? <laughs> and he's looking, I think, for every possible way to manipulate people. Right. So with her, it might be through that, through you know her, you know, budgeting sexuality or something, and through somebody else, it's some a different thing. So he's like you said, he he's shaking people's hands that second too long, saying, you know, let's be friends. It's he's figuring out how to become friends. The one person that I, I forgot to mention is uh, Shipman. I can't remember his first name, but he's basically the money in town. One of the things that I like is that he, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to remember if this really comes through in the, uh, the, the, the movie or not. I think it does, that he is Tom McDonald's boss, so that even if Tom McDonald wants to oppose Adam Kramer, Shipman is behind him. So we've got big business behind Kramer pretty much as soon as he comes into town and it manages to manipulate the media, which is kind of interesting. They basically own the media, they say, you know. Hi, I'm Bill O'Reilly. Thanks for watching us tonight. Big win for Donald Trump. 
it's really kind of honestly it's really quite strange watching it now it's really strange how many things and i know it's largely us projecting these things back but it's a little disheartening when 40 years have passed and you're starting to see a lot of the same you know tropes and uh, reality some of it's projecting but some of it's not i mean a lot of the stuff is so direct to what's going on now yeah that you can't help but wonder like you said it's sad it's unfortunate but I, yeah, I, I'm not sure that there is a whole lot of projecting. I think a lot of this is pretty on the nose, apparent, just like pretty explicit. Mm. It's pretty explicit. And like it's just like yeah, they control the media because the rich guy owns it, and the the racist is getting in his ear. Jesus, yes, God, what 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 else does this does this movie just need to have a character with a pompadour hairstyle? With is that what this movie needed? Is that what Adam Kramer needed to make this just even more on the nose than anything else? And for a little bit, I would say that the movie actually kind of shifts from Kramer. Now, Kramer, I can't really call him our protagonist. I guess I should just call him our main character. But for a little while, it seems like it kind of shifts over into being Tom as our main character. Because Adam kind of drops out for a little bit. Especially once he makes his... Well, he makes a a fantastic speech on the steps of the uh, city hall. Where he even does... I would say kind of a, a Hitler salute at one point, you know, kind of reminded me of that uh, that woman who was saluting Trump during the Republican National Convention who kind of slipped and, you know, gave him the, the Hitler salute and then quickly, you know, oh, yeah, no, I meant a, a wave. I didn't mean a Hitler salute. With Donald J. Trump, thank God that wait is over. God bless you and God bless the United States of America. That speech is amazing. And the way that it's shot, too. I love the way that it starts on him and then pulls back and shows the crowd that's there. And it, it's funny to read how they shot that and that Cormo was very aware. You know, of course, by this time he had made a, a bunch of films and he was very aware that to have a crowd that size, you're not going to keep them for that long, especially if they're not getting paid very much money. So he shot all those crowd scenes with as many people as, as quickly as he could. And then by the end, he's shooting Shatner's close-ups, and there's nobody else around. And that Shatner could keep up that intensity through that entire performance. I mean, he really does a great job of giving this very awful but stirring speech. He also said uh, most of the people in that square were actually pro-segregation. So, you know, despite they were shooting this, I guess, uh, very close to Mississippi on the Missouri border, it said uh, that, uh, you know, it looks so it would look like the South, but they'd still be protected by the laws of the North. That was Corman's thinking. That way he couldn't get in real trouble besides maybe arrested. But uh, it starts with a push-in. It starts with Shatner looking at the first black students going – into the school and then it just pushes into his eyes and when it pulls out he's in the rally and it's like there's a couple really for like independent filmmakers i think there's a couple transitions in this movie that are really smart and you know just really economical given the low budget you know eighty thousand dollars when i was really happy too that we actually get to spend a little bit of time with the african-american students that it's not just i mean there's really we just focus on one guy we focus on joey green and we don't get too much but i think we get enough and we get his family his relationship with his brother how much stress that he's under with the idea of having to go to this white school that maybe he's not super happy about it 
And then I like the whole idea of when the kids are all going to school, though, what was it? The, the one black guy has a great line about, You Negroes gonna cause some us niggas to get killed. Oh, man, that just took my breath away to hear that. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, it felt like right out of a Spike Lee film, that line. Really insightful. But I mean, there's there's still things. I mean, I still think about you know with the rally, uh, and you know I, I'm I'm, clear, I'm really shorting this Trump stuff. But the idea that you go to a place that you're not from and you try to dumb down what you say to the audience and you speak like they do uh, and you take advantage of that, uh, and then the one time uh, the newspaper man tries to fact check him says, "How do you know?" You know, you just yell louder. You don't you don't hit him back with any facts or any he just yells louder. He just he literally gets louder. And then that last line, uh, last big kind of salute is my country stays free, white, and American. Just hearing that is insane right now. Do you people want niggers taking over? No. No. You can't solve a problem if you're afraid of it. You can't solve a problem if you're not gonna even mention the name. So we're going to solve the problem. Are you willing to fight this thing down to the last ditch and keep fighting until it's over? Yeah! Then I'm willing to fight with you. Why, Mr. Kramer? Why? Because I'm an American, sir, and I love my country. And I'm willing to give my life if that be necessary. To see that my country stays free, white, and American. We're going to make America great again. We're going to win all the time. We're going to bring our country back. And we're all going to be proud once again to be citizens of this incredible country. I love you. I love you. I love you. Thank you. Again, like how much more on the nose did it need to get? Like that Whoa. that whole scene, I was sitting there just thinking, Oh my god. Yeah. This movie just hitting every single hitting every single button that I would assume a film made today about what has been going on in this country would hit. And this film hits all those buttons and it didn't even know that, that this what we're going through now was gonna happen. And it's just all it's all, you know, you know. It's it was intentional for the time, but now it's even more applicable. Well, I think it just kind of shows how these things are going to repeat themselves until we can break some of these cycles. And this whole idea of, yeah, speaking down to these folks to to uh, adapt. And what was it like? They said that the average reading level that that Trump was speaking to is like a fourth grade level or something like that. Because it's just he didn't use big words and everything, even though he's got words he's got the best words he uses the best words Mike. he's got the best brain he's got a really good brain he's going to use that brain he's going to get the best generals around who he's got such a plan it's the best plan i'm very highly educated i know words i have the best words but there's no better word than stupid and that's exactly what kramer is doing he's got nothing solid and then when you know the the first cracks of his power you know he, he's got people in the palm of his hand when he's giving that speech on the steps of city hall and it's almost immediately after that that things start to fall apart for him he doesn't know that things are falling apart for him when they 
get this whole cavalcade of cars and go up and do this cross burning all of these guys in their clan robes and when they kill one of the the black people the the preacher if memory serves they kill this guy that's really when kramer has lost control he wanted at least he said he wanted this stuff to be nonviolent. I think he wanted to think that he could control this crowd that much that he could keep these things nonviolent. Though at the same time I'm not really sure how sincere he was when he said that. You know, I th- I think uh the allusion to Trump there, there's a look on his face, you know, when he really figures out that he's lost the crowd at the end, even though we're jumping ahead a little, where there's this, you see it on his face where he realizes, oh, they could, you know, kill someone, uh, and I'm going to be directly responsible for having lied. And you actually see him uh, in a, just this moment of fear on his face. And it, all that flashed through my mind was if we could have seen Trump's face the second he found out he had won the election, I think it would have been the same look. It's like that look of, oh, I'm not ready for this. You know, I don't want that. This isn't what I want. You know, there's just something in that moment that it felt crystallized. You know, that idea that, hey, you, you fired up the mob. Now they're yours. It's almost the opposite of what this character is going through. Well, it was a hell of a lark. And uh, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, no. Yeah. Now we all have to live the lark. Yeah. And, and that, and I think you're right. Again, you know, with with all of this being kind of a, a Trump, a, a very just on the nose Trump comparison, the scene at the end of the film where he loses the crowd and the scene in the middle of the film where he is standing on the steps enthralling the crowd with his hate speech, I think are such, I, I, they're my favorite scenes in the film because it really shows the quality of William Shatner to show off his acting ability that I feel like is constantly poo-pooed by everyone for good reason. I mean, look at what he did on some of the TV shows and some of the stuff he's been in. But it shows his ability as an actor to really convey his emotions in a way that are believable. And then when you look at his face in that scene in halfway through the film, he really it's, you know, it's terrifying how easy it is to draw the parallels between that and what we had been seeing for the last 18 months. Well, we tend to forget just how violent the Trump campaign was, just how violent his supporters were and are. I mean, the wave of hate crimes that happened after the election, but then just to see people who were cast out, to see him up on stage. So if you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. Okay? Just knock the hell. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees. I promise. I promise. Yeah, you can get them out. Yeah, get them out. Get them the hell out of here. Get him out of here. And then you know they're not politely shaking their hand and saying, have a good day, sir. We're very sorry that you didn't enjoy the rally. You know that it's it's like uh, the scene at Casino where they're taking, you know, they're not necessarily putting somebody's head in a vice, but they're definitely beating the shit out of these people. And you've right. seen bruised, bruised and bloodied people, and you've heard what they say in the crowds you've you've heard the the just the amount of hate speech that is going on inside of those the those rallies it's just 
and, and you know that Trump is aware of that. So it's it's like a full denial. The, you know, he'll be in denial, just like this character. They're in denial, so they can move on because what they represent is something even bigger than that. A few people are getting bruised. That's okay, because what I represent is more important to them. Exactly. And then you'll you know you'll court a Ben Carson or an Amorosa yeah. or whoever afterwards, and just be like, oh yeah, see, look at how inclusive I am. I am just a wonderful, wonderful person. The clan scene we were you were just getting to. I mean, the scene with the the I call I'm calling it the ride of the Valkyries scene because I kept thinking about it and I thought you could just replace the music right there. I mean, it's like a spear leading you know this cavalcade through this town. It it's one of the most amazing visual images I've ever seen in a movie. When I really think about it, uh, between that and the the crossfade, the uh, superimposition you're talking about, those two images in this film, I'll, I'll never forget them. I feel like it's as close as I've ever seen to how frightening those images could have been to people at the time because they're and the way corman shot it you know they just had to keep going they they knew they left it to the, be the last shot of production shot the cross and then got the hell out of town you know because uh, otherwise it would be run out but it, there's something about that I, you almost can't believe that you're watching wow how'd you get this on film this is just such a strong image because it's not just another image in a movie it represents so much history you know, it's not just like another recreation, like a lot of movies are always doing. There's something more to that, the weight of what you're seeing, that symbol. Uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing. And even on an aesthetic level, it's kind of beautiful. It's like, you know, it's haunting. It's in, in a frightening way. Yeah, it is one of those moments where you're just like, wow, I can't believe I'm seeing this in a Roger Corman film. I mean, I don't mean to denigrate Roger Corman and his abilities at all, but this does go beyond what you typically expect from a Roger Corman film. This is, as you said, it does feel like an art house film, and you don't typically expect that from Roger Corman. And it makes you wonder what would have happened if it had done well. You know, it would have been a totally different career, and he probably would have directed for a long time. You know, it could have been a Cassavetes-type career or whatever. I mean, I'll say that the Poe films are gorgeous. Especially Mask of the Red Death. Yes, and there's some great artistry inside of that, but Intruder just takes things to a whole different level for me, and I think a lot of it is the Howard Stein score, the wonderful cinematography, but again, we've brought up the acting, the writing is fantastic in this, but yeah, the direction, all of, we are firing on all cylinders when it comes to this, even if we're dealing with non-professional actors in a lot of these roles, even when we've got, I love how many science fiction writers, friends of Charles Beaumont that we have in this film, they are all doing a fantastic job, and this all comes together in a really wonderful package. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, this kind of near-realist feel that we're talking about, uh, that it's just shooting in the streets. Like a camera, you're down there in the streets. We People forget that Corman, you know, a big part of uh, kind of his uh, legacy will be the fact that he was the guy uh, importing all the European art films, for the most part, into America. So he was, like, obviously watching a lot of this stuff. And so you really see, this is the only film I can really see that influence in his work. We keep coming back to the scene with the cross, superimposed on the window over Shatner's face that, you know, on top of everything else with Corman, it was so smart to have that scene also be like another cog in how Shatner's character comes crashing down because once the character of Sam gets in his head, that's when everything starts falling apart because he gets in his head because he seduced his wife. 
So it's it's great on top of everything else that the scene that's taking place while Shatner is looking at the burning cross, which is another cog in his downfall. What's going on in that scene is his hubris is getting to him where he's like, well, I can seduce this woman, this woman with problems. So I should seduce this woman. And it's it's just so smart on Corman's part and uh, Beaumont's part to really put this as kind of the everything that happens in the last half of the film starts in these two scenes back to back. Kramer can do whatever he wants. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the pussy. He can, I mean, and, he, and he does. He's and it definitely comes back got a rapist. There's definitely a rapey vibe that, that he's almost like uh, sexually only capable, you know, if he's in this kind of predator mode. That's how it feels. It's he can't. It's not intimacy, you know. It's domination. Whatever he does. Well, and they and they touch on that when he's having when he's. I don't think he has sex with the the teenager Ella, but I mean they're getting close, and that's just it's upsetting. Beaumont really plays that up when it that those two scenes are in the book because he Kramer is unable to finish with ella he really wants to go all the way with her and she kind of wants him to go all the way but not and when kramer pulls himself back and uh you know just kind of lets her be he goes back to the hotel and he's still stewing in his own juices and he's just like he has I don't want to say he has blue balls, but he has an ache inside of him. And that's when he immediately goes to Vi and it's just like, okay, yeah, this is, this is easy pickings. This is a loose woman, you know, and, and plus Sam is stupid. So it's going to be really easy to get one over on him because of, of he thinks that he is so superior to everyone. And he thinks he is able to just grab him by the pussy and do whatever he wants with anybody. And Corman, uh, you know, I've seen a great interview with Corman. He's really obsessed with Freud. And I remember him talking about the post-cycles, and he would always talk about Freud and how basically he looked for everything visual and everything interesting. The subtext of those films is based on Freud. Well, uh, here you guys are talking about, you know, this impotency. I think the scene, I think he does it not with the girls. I think he does it uh, with the gun where he can't pull the trigger. You know, he's in there and he just he's holding the gun. He says, yeah, you know, shoot me. And and he cannot pull that trigger. And I think I think it's really clever. You're showing the, this male impotency, uh, but not with the woman. Just he's impotent all around. <laughs> you know, he can't even count to five to pretend that he's going to shoot Sam. <laughs> yeah. Can't even make it all the way up to yeah, five. Broken. Yeah. And his ability to talk. So when he, you know, they confront, he confronts them. His ability to talk down a guy whose whose wife he just fucked. It seems amazing in the moment. The ability to just pivot, pivot on the lie, just like Trump. That's one of the most incredible things about what we've been witnessing for the last year is watching someone who, in the moment, is so good at just saying what you know, whatever he needs to say. It doesn't matter what it is. And Sam calls him on it. Yeah, he's like your ability. Your ability to sell me this is amazing. He says it right there, and he does. And and Kramer doesn't even bat an eye. He just he just doesn't even bat an eye. He he's just he doesn't say anything because what's he going to say? Yeah, you're right. You can't acknowledge you can't acknowledge it. And just that he then continues to build on the lies, and that really the only thing that's different about this movie than real life is that so towards the end of the film, you know they've they've scared away the black people by burning the cross by burning down the church, killing this preacher. So the black people aren't coming to school anymore. And then Tom McDonald goes up there and takes all the kids down. He kind of leads this parade of these, what, 12, 11, 12 students down into, into town. 
and he gets the shit kicked out of him for his troubles, uh, put in the hospital, he loses an eye, and when it seems like this is a moment where we see this chink again in Kramer's armor. So he just ups the ante and manipulates Ella into lying about one of the black students about Joey Green raping her. You, you got to talk about where he comes from. I, I couldn't even believe it. it's probably the most ridiculous scene in the movie. He, he, she goes into her bedroom and he literally pops out of the shower. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like the devil. Yeah, <laughs> and and the best part about that scene is it's literally his voice starts that scene. You don't even see like him in the corner. You hear his voice and she looks up and there he is. Yeah, it's a really kind of a wacky, wacky moment, but it still works because of the kind of ominous. But there was one thing you, you kind of you're glossing over. There's a moment I think that that Tom gets beaten. The way they put, they don't spend a lot of time on uh, Tom, and if this was like a traditional uh, Hollywood film, that Tom would be your, you know, protagonist because because he actually goes through a change. And I think that idea of becoming a martyr for something that you didn't even realize you believed in is actually at the core of this a really powerful. Uh, motif like that's real empathy is like some guy who actually probably did believe in segregation and is just going about his day sees something that he doesn't believe in and then suddenly wakes up and realizes oh I didn't even realize I believed in this it's it's it, for the amount of screen time it gets I, I the fact that you can kind of believe it I think it's it's really well done that moment too when he looks up at his wife with his one good eye and says am I going to lose my eye and she tells him that he already lost it oh man that just ripped the heart out of me. So, like I was saying, the one thing that doesn't ring true in this movie is that she lies about Joey raping her. Eventually, the the, the crowds come. They're going to take Joey away. They're going to string him up in a really weird way by putting him on a swing set. That Whatever. But the thing that rings false for me is that even when she comes and says, no, really, he didn't rape me. And, and Sam is there and shows up Kramer. I think if this was 2017, the crowd would say, we don't care and just continue to go on. Like once Adam Kramer starts his whole, no, this guy's a liar and you can't believe him. You know, he works for the NAACP or anything and just starts grasping at straws. I think now the audience would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever he says, we're going to believe and just let's carry on because we want to believe in Adam Kramer. We want to believe that we can make America great again. I'm OK, I'm glad that you said that, because like I said, when we first started talking about this film, the ending for me is the part that I really have a problem with, because it, it seems to it seems to end and wrap up way too neatly. And every like building, every piece of building momentum that we've had with the crowd clearly having their own momentum. I mean, to the point where Sam says, you know, you can't control the crowd anymore. And then all it takes is them going, well, he lied. He told her to lie. That's all it takes for them to stop. Really? Even then, I have a hard time believing that that would stop them. The only yeah, I, I agree with the very end. I, I actually think the the witch hunt and the lynching uh, lead up, everything's really strong. I think it just ends a little abrupt. What's funny is it ends almost exactly like an episode of a Twilight Zone, more than a movie. It's more like a quick wrap up, final shot of somebody you know sitting with around the swing. So the fact that the Beaumont connection kind of makes sense, but um, 
the when they're actually doing this uh, this lynch mob, it's that lock her up, lock her up kind of thing, right? That Shatner's leading, but then he lo- when he loses control of that completely, uh, I think so when it gets a little silly is like you know the people punching him in the stomach. That's the that's the part uh, where the you know the the rich guy punches him in the stomach. That kind of stuff that feels or slaps him to the ground. That's the kind of stuff that maybe feels a little you know movieish. It loses a little bit of that gritty, gritty reality in that moment. He hits the ground and it's like it's almost like Pratt fall. He hits the ground and he just stays there and doesn't move. Like okay, everything was, was pretty one, good until this part. There is one shot, one uh, like probably my other favorite moment in the film, and it actually made me like laugh out loud because it was just so dark. Was it cuts from the girl crying rape with the black guy in the background, the black kid, to the white checker jumping the black checker on a chessboard and i I literally just wrote in my notes as i'm watching just i wrote one of the best cuts i've ever seen like that thematic cut i mean it's it's, you know it sounds pretty on the nose when you describe it when you're watching that movie it's just so it's just like it's you know it's this game this really dangerous game of uh you know a culture war it's it's pretty. It's a pretty amazing cut. Like I, I would almost tell someone, you could, we should watch this movie just to see some of these these mo- cinematic moments that are surprising. They come at you for your lies. You come back with a bigger lie, and that's like I said. That's the only thing that rings false to me. Is just that it seems like he would be able to sell them on an even bigger thing at the end, and they'd just be like, "Yay, we love you!" And you know, put him up on his shoulders and take the black guy down to the river, or. or you know, go to the nearest tree and string him up and everybody's even more happy because that's just the way that it is right now. It just feels like there's never going to be an end to an Adam Kramer. I mean, I, I wish that big business would punch Trump in the stomach and, and off we go. But no, it's just it continues to build and build and build. And it doesn't seem like there's any end in sight. And realistically, in 2017, this this movie would probably have a less than optimistic ending because this film's ending is pretty optimistic. You know, he gets run out of town. Sam Griffin says, well, you know, your work here is done time for you to leave. Yeah. I think in 2017, the character of Joey green would die. Adam Kramer would succeed. And, and there you go. Like I, I just, I'm surprised at the optimism in this film because considering how far this film goes without optimism, that could be the director really shining through, like his view. You know, he re- he might have really been trying to say that he believes that this was just a matter of time. I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, I, I, I noted at the time like maybe a more ominous ending and maybe more believable would almost to just replicate the start. You know, he's beaten, he's beaten up, and then he just gets on a bus and then he goes to the next town and he pulls out and does the exact same thing, tries again. You know, I feel like that kind of that rep, you know repetition could have really worked for it. Um, I think seeing the a kid actually hung in that moment might really push the movie to that point where it's just even too much for anyone to watch <laughs> you know because the kid you just i mean maybe that's what the what the world needed at that time though you know to really get noticed well yeah you hope that the bad guy is going to pay at the end you hope that things will be put right i always wonder about five minutes after this movie how do the people feel that have wandered away from adam kramer now how, do they feel like they've been taken advantage of or not do they feel like they were in the right? Are they going to now embrace integration or are they still going to harbor all these horrible feelings? Is it just going to take another 55 years before somebody can come in and fire these people up again? How well, do they I mean, feel about yeah. blinding one of the p- members of town? 
Like, that's like, what the hell's going on? Like, they, they blinded someone. They need to be held accountable. Like, the wrap up for this movie is a little too neat for me. I think you're right. Like, I would love to see what happens five minutes after this movie ends. Yeah. When Tom McDonald was walking through town, you know, two weeks from now, six weeks from now, whenever he's healed up. And he looks at the people and he's got that eye patch on or the glass eye or whatever he's got. Is that like a laser that cuts through all the bullshit in town? Or do they just maybe look at him sheepishly and think, you know, well, that was wrong, but it was done for the right cause? I mean, we think we live in crazy times, but you think about that ending of that movie is coming out two years before uh, segregation was actually abolished. It's two years of living in this way after a movie like that was made. I mean, the, you watch a movie with an ending like that, and you're like, all right, I'm sure everything's fine after that. But two more years before anything happened, it's it's pretty pretty hard to believe. Even as bad as we think things are now, they're definitely heated, and it's like it's almost like a lot of the stuff buried is just coming back to the surface so we can deal with it. Maybe we have to deal with it. But uh, it's really hard to believe that it's taken you know this many years. Well, when people are still complaining, you know, do you think that the blacks are being a little too vocal about wanting voter rights? You know, it's like, what? <laughs> what, what, what do you say? Well, black lives matter. You know, yeah. this idea that they're allowed. Oh, well, they don't need to have their own special. All lives matter. Blue lives matter. It's like, no, that's not the point. <laughs> you know, imagine the people in, in Caxton. If uh, Joey Green showed up one day wearing a Black Lives Matter T-shirt. It's, it's unthinkable. And, you know, this is today Trump's president. You know, it's, it's really, really quite unimaginable. I know. And you see those pictures. You talked about Twilight Zone, and there is the whole connection of Beaumont and the Twilight Zone writing so many great episodes for that. But you see those pictures of, you know, that have photoshopped Rod Serling in front of Trump sitting at the desk in the Oval Office. And it's just, it's felt like that for so long. It's felt like we're just waiting for Serling to step out and let us know that this is an episode. Let us know that this is some weird alternate history that we've entered into and that maybe things will be okay And after 30 minutes, maybe at the end of 90 minutes, like with this movie or 70, I guess, that things will be all right, that Adam Kramer will be, you know, kicked down and he's eventually helped up by Sam another shyster but still you know we want to know that the bad guy's going to lose at the end of the episode or the film serling is shaking his head because we didn't listen he's he's it's like they gave us all the, these kind of warnings not in you know in general in human human you know we you know we're living even through nazi germany it's there are warnings throughout history and that sometimes it makes it even harder to see when it's in your own uh, like boiling the frog, you know, it's you don't see it always while while you're around it. And not in our case, but in you know parts of America that have very different problems. And like we're all like they keep saying we're in the bubble. <laughs> you talk about uh, living through Nazi Germany, and of course I picture young Dennis Hopper getting so infatuated by Nazism in that uh, other episode of The Twilight Zone. Where will he go next? This phantom from another time, this resurrected ghost of a previous nightmare. Chicago, Los Angeles, Miami, Florida, Vincennes, Indiana, Syracuse, New York, any place, every place, where there's hate, where there's prejudice, where there's bigotry. He's alive. He's alive so long as these evils exist. Remember that when he comes to your town. Remember it when you hear his voice speaking out through others. Remember it when you hear a name called, a minority attacked, any blind, unreasoning assault on a people or any human being. He's alive because through these things, we keep him alive.
I do think that with a film like this, and you know, like you guys said, everybody, you know, in the United States, there's this this feeling of out of touch. How could this happen in our country? You know, Donald Trump, how could he get elected? I don't understand. At the same time, when this film was made, people couldn't understand desegregation. No one could understand why you would want blacks and whites to be in school together. Yeah. And it was and there was and there like there's not a real reason why there's not. It's there's not a reason. But, you know, looking at it now as someone who is, you know, a millennial, I cannot understand why you would not want blacks and whites in school together. Well, I think there, there is, are, I think there is a reason and it's Tom. Like and and I mean in our life it's Tom. It's the Toms of the world. I hate to have a modern film that I felt this way was uh, Moonlight. It's the mo- it's that it's the people who could see why. You know what I mean? And and it wasn't always people uh who were living that experience, but it's that idea can you be empathetic even if it doesn't touch your daily life, which is right. hard. I think really hard for anyone. Uh, it's just like you know, um, a lot of people who uh, dislike certain groups. It's usually because they have never met anyone, right? And it comes right. from ignorance, which these towns are. So I, I know when I, I saw Moonlight, uh, talking about a modern film, I saw it the uh, day Trump got elected, or the day after Trump got elected. And there's something in me that, for at least a few minutes afterwards, where I felt very hopeful because I felt like if somebody could make a film and make me feel so empathetic about these characters in a world I didn't know or uh, firsthand, I felt like, okay, that's there's something powerful still in the you know, uh, human understanding. So, so yeah, I think I totally, I totally see what I mean, but I do think there are those people that like, just like that character, Tom, who doesn't even realize he's heroic or, you know, important. Right. And he's, and he, and then he pays for it. Yeah, he and he's for right. and he's forever changed at the hands of ignorant people. I feel like our country is Tom, and we're forever changed because of the because of the way that this last political cycle has gone. Right, this country will forever be changed by how we view politics. I know I'm forever changed because there was always this sentiment, at least when I was growing up, and probably when you guys were growing up as well, that anyone could be president. Anyone, black, white, man, woman. We had a black president. We must had a white president or a white female president. But instead we got a celebrity personality, businessman. Anybody can be president. There's proof. He's a celebrity and he's a, he is president. Well, it's just when we t- you guys were mentioning the one eye thing, and this was just kind of comes to mind. It's a really cheesy uh, analogy, but it would know in Corman, it wouldn't surprise me if there's obvious, you know, the idea of uh, in the land of the blind, the one eyed man is king and that, you know, you were talking about a very ignorant population of where this movie is set at the time, and this, that even this one-eyed guy could literally stand out and see see the truth. So I, you, you were talking earlier about the kind of laser beam look. I, I think there's something to that. We look back at Nazi Germany and we go, how could that have happened? How could the people have have fallen for Hitler? How could this have this cancer have spread? And you look back and, and, you know, 60, 70 years on, and it's just like, oh, well, th- those people, they were so stupid. They were so easily duped. You know, they, they should have stood up uh, against this kind of stuff. We're going to have this same black mark on our record when we look back 50, 60 years from now. We're going to look back, hopefully, we're going to look back and say, how could we have let that happen? And thank God we live in much more enlightened times now. That's my hope. Hopefully. Hopefully it's a swing. Yeah, hopefully it's a it's a wake up. And I know a lot of us who just, you know, eight years is a long time to feel kind of comfortable. 
I think politically for some people, and I think that's maybe a big reason why a lot of us, you know, who feel passionately for uh, President Obama, you know, maybe don't didn't see it coming, you know, because we felt good and we felt the world had was going to be on this kind of fairly liberal twenty thirty year swing turnaround. And then to be blindsided in a way that's pretty unfathomable because I never never took him as more than a joke, even though I knew he was very good at what he did and very manipulative. I still, even to the day, even when he won the first couple states, I thought, no, this isn't going to happen. As soon as he starts talking about building a wall between us and Mexico, it's just like, well, okay, this guy's just going to get laughed off the stage. But let's not forget here uh, again, as unconscionable as it is that Donald Trump got elected. There were people who feel this exact same sentiment when Obama got elected. This, this is this is this is a systemic issue with winning and losing, right? I won. Obama won, so I'm a winner because he won. Trump won. I didn't vote for him, so I lost. The idea that there's winners and losers in politics, I I understand that, but at the end of the day, like that mentality. Is is what this is what this film is all about? Is what this whole conversation is about? Is who wins in society and who loses by certain things happening? And Adam Kramer loses in the film because he isn't able to impress upon everyone who lives in the town his ideas, and they won. But at the end of the day, stuff like this happening, everybody loses. Like everyone loses with Trump as president. Everyone, everyone loses when there is a rift in society as deep as there is in this film and as deep as there is in our country. Now, everyone loses. Nobody wins. They think they won, but they didn't. No one wins when our country is, is this divided or as divided as this community is in this film. Well, and the big difference, yeah, between those two candidates, you know, Obama was preaching inclusion to get elected, and then Trump is uh, preaching exclusion to get elected. And both times it worked. To- two totally different messages, both times got somebody the job, which is really hard to uh, hard to fathom in a lot of ways. But, you know, the real thing will be, it's like when you lose the crowd, uh, when will he lose the crowd? You know, will it be days after being elected? Will it be once he doesn't you know, deport millions of people, you know, it, there's going to be a real problem for him because the kind of lies he had to tell to get elected were unachievable in the modern era, pretty much. Like, he can do a lot of things. He could start wars. He could, you know, but the idea, the actual mass deportation, building the wall, none of those things are going to really, on the level he he promised people, could happen, in my but opinion. But then he'll just, he'll just say what every other politician has ever said. Because, mind you, he went into office saying, I'm not a politician. I'm not a politician. This is my great success. I'm not a politician. I'm going to go drain the swamp. I'm not going to be a politician. He has already backtracked on so many things that he said he was going to do. I'm going to build a wall. Yeah, it's more of a metaphysical wall. It's more of an idea. It's like Santa Claus. It's idea. It's idea of the wall. Okay. You've already backtracked that. You've already backtracked a bunch of stuff. He's becoming a politician. He's becoming what people voted for him to not be. He's becoming that. When we look at how this is going to end up playing out, everyone who voted for him will be pissed. Everyone who didn't vote for him will be pissed. And he'll be sitting on a throne with no constituents. But a lot of piss. Yeah. This all over. (laughs) Two Russian women just peeing on his head. (laughs) It's this weird sentiment that, you know, it's just like at the end of the film with Kramer where he's like, oh, I was just like screaming and like pounding his fists and no one is listening. Like you well, can you know scream at the top of your lungs uh, and deaf ears won't hear you. Th- those are uh, like tr- Trump's Twitter tirades. 
They're pathetic. They're like these crazy screaming into the abyss. At the I really I think yeah yeah you're dead on with that those final pleads of the character. It's just the same kind of character. He has the same kind of moral character uh, as this. Uh, as Kramer, uh, there's a line, uh, you know, one of the last important lines of the movie is when the girl just says, it's just very simply, she just says, it was a lie. And it's just, you know, it, that's, that, that carried over to what we're talking about. It's powerful to me. It's like, this has all been a lie, but it worked for till, to an extent. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Jason V. Brock, the director of Charles Beaumont, The Short Life of Twilight Zone's Magic Man. And we'll be back with that after these brief messages. Ready. Set. Spartan Race is back for 2018, and we're accepting no excuses. Barbed wire crawls, tire drags, spear throws, and much more. Whatever your ability, you'll discover the right challenge for you. Take on our 5 to 25 kilometer events designed to push you to limits you never knew you could overcome. Complete an obstacle course race and let adventure back into your life. Are you ready to unleash your inner Spartan warrior? Visit SpartanRace.uk. You guys look like... What do they look like, Jimmy? Dorks. (laughs) They look like a couple of dorks. If you're looking for dorky, geek-filled content where you can nerd out over movies, television, comic books, and so much more, then you've come to the right place. The In the Mouth of Dorkness podcast is bringing geek-related content to you three times a week. Hey everyone, I'm the Turtle Dork here at Mod. On Mondays, we drop our Weekend Dork episode, which is a recap of sorts, where we discuss the most pertinent geek-related things we did in the previous week. Hi, I'm Wife Dork, and on Wednesdays, we drop our Homework Cast episode. Each week, the dorks take turns choosing a movie for the month's chosen dork to watch and review, like Heat, or Star Trek II, or Green Room. Howdy, I am the Mouth Dork. And finally, on everyone's favorite day of the week, we drop our Fistful Friday episode. Each Fistful episode is basically a top five list related to movies, comics, or some other geek-related topic. Because we all know at the end of the week, we need a little fist of Xander Cage. Hey, and I'm the Disco Dork. In addition to our regularly scheduled programming, we have special guests, film festival and comic convention coverage, interview episodes, and more. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, and other podcast platforms. Just search In the Mouth of Darkness or It Modcast, where we are for the promotion and progression of geek culture. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film, (laughs) and it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. If you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, <laughs> tune in to Outside the Cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, where the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good party cinema related stuff go here for the cinema come to us for the laughs afterwards we hate movies every tuesday
you've been working with uh, William Nolan for a while now. How did you two meet? As I was doing the film, the way the films came about, the, I told my wife I'm really interested in doing this, but the the, the kicker for that, I'd already had experience doing a lot of these things, obviously. And I've kind of have this, my mindset is kind of like Dan O'Bannon and John Carpenter, you know, and what Tom Savini, the effects guy and actor, has said for in an interview I read years ago in Fangoria, where he says, well, the more you can do, the more they'll let you do in a film. And so I thought, well, that's the idea. And then, you know, you look at auteurist-type directors like Carpenter or even O'Bannon, and they, you know, Carpenter does the music, he does, you know, a lot of the cinematography, he's doing the direction, they're writing, they're producing. And I thought that that was a cool thing, this unified vision, that's what I wanted. And so with my wife, what happened was we went to San Diego Comic-Con we were interested in the film stuff because she had worked a little bit on f- some film things uh, in, in Seattle where she worked at Microsoft. And uh, I said, you know, at Comic-Con we saw not a panel, but we were there was a signing with Ray Harryhausen, the special effects uh, guru, Forrest J. Ackerman, you know, the fan guy and also famous monsters of Filmland, and author Ray Bradbury. And they were longtime friends, and they had been, you know, and they were there all signing at once. And I thought, wow, you know, I think what a, a way to break into film is to do a documentary, and it requires getting all this all this equipment together. But I think that what I want to do, I researched it some, and I saw that uh, Bradbury, of course, has had several documentaries done on him and or aspects of his work, and Harrahausen had had one done. Uh, fairly recently at that point. And I said, you know, but no one has done a documentary on Ackerman, which at the time was totally true. So I started the first documentary on Ackerman, which is our film, The Monster Chronicles. And it took a while to get going because there was another film we wound up doing finishing first, but we started with Ackerman. And as a result of that, I met a lot of people. I call, I didn't know anyone in the industry at all, except for my friends on the East Coast. And so what I did was we I basically wrote letters and sent them and found these addresses to people or their agencies or whatever and wrote them cold letters and introduced myself and what I planned to do. And the first person to call me back, uh, well, the first person to contact us back was Bradbury. Bradbury said he would be interested and that, uh, you know, we would have to do it on his terms, come to his home, et cetera. And I said that was not a problem. Once Bradbury was attached, then other people became interested. And one of the ones that became interested also was John Landis, the director. And uh, he called me. I remember being in the shower. My wife, <laughs> she, I'm coming out of the shower, you know, and my hair's all wet and everything. And my wife says, John Landis is on the phone. And I said, what? And so I said, okay, well, and so I talked to Landis. You know, he's a very animated character. And he was like, well, so you want to do this this film? And so, you know, it was about Ackerman. And I said, yes. And, I, and he says, well, wh- wh- how far along are you? And, you know, who's involved? And so I said, well. You know, like I have this person and this person is committed and, you know, we are. And at that point, I think we had actually maybe interviewed Bradbury one time and he says, OK, fine. So I'll be involved in that, too. But, you know, you, let me know when you get further along, because he thought maybe it would fall through, I suspect. And I said I would. And uh, we did get it going and it didn't fall through. And so that's how it happened. And one of the last people I met was William F. Nolan. And how that happened was we were interviewing. So it turned out that it was easier to interview these people, because a lot of them knew or have worked with Charles Beaumont, which was our first film, Charles Beaumont, The Twilight Zone's Magic Man. That was the second film we shot, the first film released, but it's the second film we started. And then during the Acker Monster Chronicles, since Beaumont was first agented 
by Forrest J. Ackerman, we thought, well, it would be easier to talk to, to people about both subjects at one time. So we were interviewing them about Ackerman and all those kinds of connections. And then we would segue into Charles Beaumont. And as a way of doing that, what happened was we were interviewing George Clayton Johnson, the, the late writer for The Twilight Zone and also the first Star Trek, The Man Trap. Uh, and he, we became very good friends with George. And George says, would you like to interview William F. Nolan? And I said, well, yes, I would. Is he alive? <laughs> and George says, he's very much alive. He's up in Bend, Oregon. And I said, well, that's strange because that's only about three hours from our house. We live in Vancouver, Washington, which is right across the river from Portland, Oregon. And so I said, that would be great. So he put me in touch with uh, with Bill, as we call him. And he also put me in touch with uh, Richard Matheson. And so we later interviewed Matheson. And then the very last person we ever really met during this whole saga was Bill. Because most people think that we met Bill and Bill gave us ingress to everyone else, but it's actually the reverse. And then after we met Bill, something about it, we just hit it off. And he came and visited us a couple of times and we went back to visit him. And, you know, and finally he wound up moving near us because uh, he didn't really have any family. And so he, and he was kind of, uh, he was going to move to Tempe, Arizona. And I said, well, with a person like you who's had, you know, he had a history of skin cancer. I said, you probably don't want to live there. I said, why don't you move up here? And so he did. And that was about, gosh, I want to say like eight years ago or something. So we've been working ever, ever since together. What got you interested in doing the documentary about Beaumont? Beaumont, I'd actually done a, like a little mini treatment called um, Of Light and Shadow was the name of it. And it was a, I was intending it as a trilogy of spec screenplays. The overall personal arc was going to be the involvement of Ray Bradbury because he was involved in three things that were interesting to me. The genesis of the Twilight Zone, EC Comics, and then also his own work. Okay, so and they all kind of dovetailed together. And so my thought was that, uh, you know, he would be kind of a background in some of them and to the foreground in others. So I had this fascination with him, which was initially sparked, the Beaumont fascination was initially sparked by uh, Mark Scott Zacree, who is our friend of ours now, but he'd written The Twilight Zone Companion, and I'd read that as a teenager. And I remember just loving that book and being fascinated when I read about Charles Beaumont in there, because he was really the first person that shone a spotlight on Beaumont and what a great you know, influence and loss he was. And so I thought that that would be a very interesting film. And there was a person that was already doing a film about Beaumont. I found out during the course of, uh, you know, seeing what was going on with the Ackerman film. As we were ta doing interviews for that, one of the people we interviewed was Mark. And Mark said, you should really consider doing a film about Charles Beaumont. And I said, yeah, I know that. But there's already a person working on that film. And it's a fellow named Clay Reed. And I said, I don't want to step on Clay's uh, project or his feet or anything, you know, and just kind of come in here. Because he, by that time, he had been working on it for three years or so with the imprimatur of the, of the Beaumont family. And uh, Mark said, you shouldn't worry about that because Beaumont's story is such a vast canvas that there's room for more than one perspective, which is true. You know, I mean, there's been several books on different people, you know, I mean, like Hemingway or Fitzgerald or Bradbury. So I thought I thought about what Mark said and I said, well. You might have a point there, you know, if I can come up with an angle. And I got to know Clay as a result of this because, of course, he'd already interviewed William F. Nolan and he'd interviewed uh, Richard Matheson and John Tomerlin and some of these people who were close to Beaumont. And uh, I got to know Clay and we actually got to be on friendly terms. And I explained to him that 
people were encouraging me to do this. And he said, yeah, he was okay with it. I'm not sure he was entirely okay with it, but to his credit, you know, he said, you know, do what you can. And I think he was already in the film industry. And I think that his feeling was that I was not going to really wind up doing the film. And I said, you know, so I said, okay, so, you know, we'll see what happens. And as a result of that, I, as I learned more and more about Beaumont, it became apparent to me that Beaumont and I had a lot of interesting character points in common. Okay. We have both have a lot of drive and intensity. We're both writers. We're both, we're actors at one time. We both loved music. And, uh, in fact, William F. Nolan years later, he did, uh, like this list of like 32 or 33 line items that were Beaumont and I were very similar. And, uh, I said, that's strange. I don't know if that's just personality types. You know, some people are more alike than others or what it is. But, uh, I, I sensed when I was interviewing some of the guys about Chuck that, as they called him, that they were looking at me strangely, like as if I was very that. And, and then the Richard Matheson and John Tomlin and, George Clayton Johnson and Bill have all told me separately and independently that I was very much like Beaumont, that I reminded them of Beaumont. And since I never met Beaumont, I found that fascinating in and of itself. But uh, and so I just something about his personality and the things I've learned about him since that resonates with me. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's just a kinship. And it's a shame. I, I would love to have met him. You know, he seems like a very interesting character and, you know, a brilliant individual. When it came to Beaumont, what kind of was your your introduction to him? And these days, what is your favorite work of his? I'd seen his work. Let's put it that way. Beaumont's work on the Twilight Zone. Um, but it was Mark who clarified who this guy is, you know what I mean? And made it plain that he was this <laughs> wild rockador type of personality. And, you know, he was a, always a free-for-all with him. And, you know, he was... And to me, I wrote a very long article, about 10,000 words, about Beaumont and the group, as they're known, which was basically what they formerly have been called in different places, the Southern California Writing School, but which they called themselves the group. And the group comes after the novel, the group. Uh, one of the wives, one of their wives named, named these guys the group, because it was mainly guys. It was about 30 guys off and on, but there was a hub, and there was one woman uh, named Mari Wolf. And, uh, but the main center point, I looked at Beaumont, I kind of looked at it as a nuclear, a nuclear structure, right? So Beaumont is like, he's the nucleus of the atom. And then right around him in the first shell of the atom is like Tomerlin, John Tomerlin, um, William F. Nolan, uh, George Layton Johnson, Richard Matheson. Then outside of that, you start getting these you know, larger and larger shells of people that come in and out, you know, like Theodore Sturgeon or Bradbury was sort of a mentor and Robert Block also was a mentor. Way out there, you get like Harlan. Uh, Harlan knew Chuck, but he was not like central part of that because Harlan at the time was living mainly in Chicago. And then he, at the latter part of Beaumont's life, he came out to move. He moved out to uh, L.A. And the same is also true for Frank M. Robinson, who was a close friend of Chuck's when they were teenagers and kids, but then uh, they fell out for years, and then eventually as Beaumont became a writer, you know, Frank Robinson, who was also a science fiction writer, uh, he wrote The Glass Inferno and with uh, Thomas Scorcia and uh, some The Power. They, uh, they, they got more and more, you know, close again over time. What I think is fascinating is that after Mark's introduction, I dug into that more, and then as I got to know each one of these guys at New Chuck, I got more and more curious about what made Beaumont tick. 
And for me, it was, I think that mainly what makes him tick or made him tick was the fear of obscurity and loss, you know, not being able to make his mark or communicate his, his inner self to his audience. So I think that for me, my favorite work of his as a, probably as, as far as scripting goes, is probably a toss up between The Intruder, the film he did with Roger Corman based on his novel, and The, the Howling Man, his adaptation of his own short story. As far as his literary output, I would have to say probably his, his most resonant work for me is like The Crooked Man and Black Country, The Howling Man, the story, but I do think the script, he actually improved on the story, those kinds of things. So I, he didn't get enough long-form work out there to really make an impression as a novelist. As far as I know, it was just the, the two novels, but then scads of short stories. Yeah, yeah. He did a lot of work. He was only active, really active, for about 13 years professionally. And during that time, he did a lot of television. I mean, The Twilight Zone he's very well known for, but he also did stuff for, like, Wanted Dead or Alive and, you know, Lawman and all that kind of stuff, which was very common back then. They did it. I think he also did Alfred Hitchcock Presents and... Uh, Bill Nolan and I are planning on doing an, an updated biblio of Chuck's work. So I'm hoping to get that done maybe next year. But it's, there's a lot of stuff we've uncovered that people just didn't realize he had done all this. And so I think that his novels, he did, uh, Run from the Hunter, and that was with John Tomlin. And he did The Intruder, and then he did, um, he started the third novel, but it was never completed or released. How did he end, um, Roger Corman get together for The Intruder? Well, what's interesting about Corman and Beaumont, I think Corman started tapping him. I can't remember who initially contacted Corman. I, would, I, I don't know if it was Corman contacted Richard Matheson first, and then you know he turned Corman on to Chuck. Because what happened with, uh, if you think about how they, they really started out, Matheson had Born of Man and Woman, the book, the, the, the short story collection. And Chuck had The Hunger and Other Stories. And Ray Bradbury gave the, both of those books to Serling. And so Serling started, brought them in as people to help him with the burden of writing for The Twilight Zone. And that kind of launched them, you know, into, into television as far as like getting a lot of uh, notoriety because Serling, of course, was just dominant in TV at that time, along with like Gore Vidal and Patty Chayefsky and that, the golden age of television writers. But that was mainly from the East Coast. On the West Coast, he was not as well regarded yet until Twilight Zone, you know, came and was a and was a success. It was never a hit, but it was a success artistically. And I think that as a result of that, Bradbury having his fingers in every kind of pie you can imagine, you know, I think somehow Matheson, I want to say, and I could be wrong about that. I'd have to go check. Got in touch with Corman. Then Corman and Beaumont started talking as a result. So they were doing the Poe films. You know, and this kind of thing. And that led up to eventually the intruder. And, Char and uh, uh, Corman, you know, he optioned the book after he read it because Corman is very much a liberal social justice person. And so the book was fascinating to him because that was actually happening at the time. The intruder is basically about a rabble rouser who goes into this small southern town during the time of the integration of schools and is uh, trying to drum up, you know, people against this. You know, he's trying to stir up all this political activity. And it was based on a true story, and Charles Beaumont had researched it by actually going down to this little town and meeting with the guy who was doing the activities. And then he wrote the novel, and the novel was released, and of course Corman read it, and then that's when he optioned it. And I think he mortgaged his house um, to get the movie made. 
and which was a big risk at the time. And Corman had not lost any money on any of his films for AIP or independently until The Intruder, because I think it was just too of the time. You know, it was ahead of its time and it was of the time. And, you know, it's a pretty fascinating thing how they did all of this. And then the movie itself didn't do that well because I think, you know, it was pretty raw for people, you know, still because integration was still happening. So it's fascinating, actually, that whole story. How did uh, George Clayton Johnson and, um, well, Beaumont himself and Nolan get involved with the film? It's so it's wonderful to see those guys in there. Beaumont and, and Corman, they were going over who they wanted to be in the movie. Corman had already hired Shatner or something like that. Beaumont either suggested himself because he used to be an actor, you know, before the film, you know, a long time ago, he was an actor. And maybe Corman said, okay, yeah, fine. And so, but then he said, I have a bunch of friends <laughs> that might be good for this. And so Corman was like, really? I don't know about this. A bunch of writers. And he's like, just trust me that they would be perfect for this. So he did little, he did little mini auditions for each of them. And so he brought it. So Chuck brought in, you know, George Clayton Johnson. He brought in William F. Nolan. And they're very memorable in the movie. And then he also brought in Frank M. Robinson, who's uncredited in a cameo. You don't even know he's in there, except it's where they're burning the cross. They take their hoods off, and there's Frank Robinson taking off a clan hood. You know, so um, and you only see him very briefly. And one of the other actors was a friend of theirs who's also a writer, mainly for the automotive industry. Uh, his name is O.C. Rich, and Chuck brought him in. And they tried to get in Matheson, because Matheson actually was an actor and has been an actor in other things. And, you know, I think if you've ever seen the movie Somewhere in Time, he has a cameo. And but uh, he also has done like local theater and this type of thing. Matheson's an interesting character. You know, he, he wrote songs for Perry Como and this kind of thing, too. You know, he's a musician. He used to have a, he used to have dual piano parties with Jerry Soul, who's another writer for The Twilight Zone and uh, Matheson playing the pianos and all this kind of thing. But anyway, so. They wanted to get Madsen in there, but at the time, I, th I want to say that Ruth, his wife, was pregnant, and he was unable to, to go down there for the shoot because they shot it on location in Sykeston, Missouri. And it was pretty dangerous, too, because a lot of these townspeople were they, – they were trying to make a – reach for all this verisimilitude, but having Shatner be this really intense rabble-rouser. And the, the people were initially mistrustful of these Hollywood outsiders coming in, these liberal Hollywood types. And so they kind of had to play this role that they were just – good old boys and like themselves and that type of thing. So it was kind of dicey there for a few, a few times, you know, where they had people very irritated or mad. So I think that what's fascinating is that the whole thing even got done. They were very quick, you know, to get this thing shot and out of there because they also were, you know, I mean, they did burn a cross for God's sakes in the movie and uh, this kind of thing. And they left immediately after burning the cross because uh, they were, very afraid that people were going to be after him. And they did have a lot of the local authorities who were kind of annoyed with him and wanted them out of there as soon as possible. So, but that's how they got involved, which is great because they're all really good in it. Yeah, they are. I was really surprised to see how good William F. Nolan was. And, uh, I love yeah, that when you... he's from, he's, yeah, he's from that area. So he says, Oh boy, he says this now. He comes to our house and he'll tell people, he goes, man, I can do those Missouri crackers, man, you know, and, What's going on with you, boy? And, you know, and all this kind of thing. So he likes, he's, Bill's kind of a ham. And George also, you know, he's, George is very dramatic. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen him or heard him speak, but he, when he was younger, he had this kind of high voice, you know, like he does in The Intruder. But as he, as he aged, he kind of has this gravelly gravitas, you know, where he sounds like this, the old man from the mountain. And he, of course, he looks like Father Time. 
now. But uh, when he was younger, George was real clean cut. You know, it's like kind of like <laughs> Willie Nelson now versus Willie Nelson when he started. You know, they're totally different people. And uh, but George was uh, he like was an underwear model and all kinds of stuff. He was crazy. So, <laughs> but they're interesting. They're an interesting group. You know. So I'm curious, how was the movie received, or or both movies, since you were kind of working on both at the same time, and then the Ackerman one comes after, but how were the films received, and are you working on anything currently? Okay, so Clay Reed, he's a nice guy, but he was, I think, utterly convinced that we were never going to get this movie done. And so he would come up to visit us in Portland, Oregon area, periodically, when he was on shoots. At one time, he brought, like, um, a cut of his film, and uh, what he wanted to do was... was look at our cut of our film. And I said, I'll, I'm willing to do that. So he came to our house a couple of times. And one time he came, he br- he brings his movie cut. And it was um, just shy of an hour. Early on, I made the decision to go with as high a technology as I could. I went with 720 um, HD in the 16 by 9 format, which now is standard, right? That's what everybody's TVs and everything is. At the time I started the movies, though, there was a question about whether we should go 4.3, which was traditional television. And not high def, but standard def. And uh, I decided to go ahead and push that envelope, even though it was very much a pain in the butt and extremely expensive to get this, you know, kind of done. And so we took a bath on that initially. Well, what happens is we put the film together and I had like a two and a half hour cut by this point. And because we had lots of footage, you know, and stuff in there, Clay brings his film and he says, we're going to watch this. This is after going back and forth and talking. And he had, I said, I don't know, Clay, I don't know if you're going to like ours. And, you know, I'm sure you have a lot more stuff. I was kind of, I was putting on the dog a little bit. You know, I was trying to make him think that we were not a threat. Because I didn't want to be a threat. But I also knew we were ready to for our film almost, it was almost complete. Okay. And I tried to find out who he had interviewed because I didn't want to replicate the things he had interviewed. Because the thrust of his film was going to be the group generally. Okay. And how Beaumont figured into that. Whereas my film, I decided I wanted to take the opposite tack. The group was going to be in the background. And I wanted them to describe Beaumont. Because Beaumont was gone. So there was no way to get a hold of him and talk to him. So he had to be revealed through his friends. So that process was going on. And that uh, simultaneous to that, with vis-a-vis Ackerman, right? We were filming Ackerman and doing all this stuff. And I told Clay that we were doing, the, and everybody, that we were doing both of these films. Okay. And then Ackerman was probably going to be the first one we completed. And at the time, I thought that was true. The reason I thought it was true is because we had interviewed, you know, we did like a very long interview with Corey Ackerman. And it was like, gosh, it was like 13 hours. And then we did another one that was like a couple hours. And then we did little events where he was there, you know, and this kind of thing. And Corey was doing well, but and he was still alive, of course. And then he had a serious accident when he was at the Worldcon in Scotland. And he was uh, scalded, as I recall, <clears throat> in a tub. And he had to stay there for like six weeks. And he almost didn't survive. And when he came back, he was much weakened. He was His health had been seriously impacted by this accident. And so one of the pickups we did, you could see he looks much different. And uh, he's, he's more enfeebled and, and this type of thing. And so I thought, well, why don't we shelve Ackerman here for a while? Because Beaumont was starting to come together suddenly. And uh, everything was like getting in, like really dropping into place for it. And so we shelved that one and we thought, well, Corey's health will improve, you know, and we can maybe do this film, blah, blah, blah. And so we released, so we get Clay Reed to come in. And I knew we had, well, I knew we had something when Clay showed us his film. 
And I noticed that he had shot everything on film, which is great, like real film, whereas we had done, you know, high def video. video. And but he was in four three format, okay, for standard television. And he also had rented like a set, and he brought the the people in to interview. So he interviewed Nolan there. He interviewed. This is before I knew Bill. He interviewed Nolan there, George Clayton Johnson there, uh, Richard Matheson there. Uh, he had not interviewed, or I could be wrong about this. I don't think he had interviewed Bradbury. Uh, he had not interviewed like Ellison or Frank Robinson or anybody like that. And he interviewed Beaumont's biographer, uh, Roger Anker, whom, whom I also interviewed. And he interviewed, uh, Christopher Beaumont, the eldest son, whom I also had interviewed. And the, he was a mutual point of contact. And, a couple of other people. But what he had done is he had also incorporated a lot of footage of the Twilight Zone into this thing. I want to say like a third of what he had, maybe more, was footage from the Twilight Zone, okay, which was not he, – he just had it for his cut, and he was going to seek out the permissions. Turns out that that footage was going to cost him about $60,000, okay, to use. These were not – yeah, these were not bumpers or, you know – promo things that you can kind of skirt around and use as fair use just to show like Serling introducing a clip or not, not from the, they were doing promotional things you can get away with and showing, uh, you know, like posters and things contextually and this type of thing. Cause it's fair use because you're explaining something in an educative way. This was like using a lot of the footage itself, you know, and you can do that, but you have to pay for it. You cannot get away with using it. And like we were able to, with the exception of our footage from the intruder, which we had to uh, purchase from Roger Corman. So with Beaumont, with his Beaumont, we were watching it and I was sitting there going, oh, my God, there's a lot of stuff from the Twilight Zone in here. And it wasn't very educative. OK, the, the what he was showing, it wasn't like bolstering a point. It was just explaining. I guess it was vaguely kind of contextualizing it, but not really explained. And he did another thing that I <clears throat> I chose not to do. And he had voiceover narration by Peter Coyote. Okay, and the narration is okay, but it was kind of like it, it, it was slow, and it was kind of <clears throat> it didn't really work, I think, because my theory of of documentaries of this sort, when you have a, a documentary about a topic, you know, like jazz or baseball or the national parks or whatever, like you know those things that that are so famous, right? Ken Burns style. That's great because you can have the narration and kind of tie everything together and the sound effects and this sort of thing. But when you're talking about a person, I think it's much dicier to use narration when you're talking about a person. What I wanted to do was what I call like the onion layer effect. I wanted the friends to be the voice and the narration. I didn't want narration. I wanted the friends to explain who Beaumont was and why he mattered to them. You know, And their voices are the ones I want to hear, not someone going, and then Charles Beaumont wrote The Intruder, and it was a novel, and Roger – I mean, because that's boring. And but his their friends explaining how they all went down there on the set, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's what's interesting, because, I mean, you got to think about it. This is basically a documentary about a writer. I mean, what could be more boring than a documentary about some guy sitting on his butt writing? You know, even somebody as exciting as Chuck Beaumont, you don't want to hear how he came up with all these short stories, you know, and how he was banging them out, you know, on his typewriter. You got to hear some kind of context and something interesting and motivating. So what happens is we see Clay Reed's cuts. And I was seeing all these things, and I was like, oh, my gosh, wow. I made very different choices. Then he was very anxious to see ours because I had a feeling I had that he was he was ready to kind of – he was ready to end this kind of uh, 
minor competition, I sensed that he was trying to engage with me, which I was not taking the bait on. So he watches our movie. And I got to tell you, Bill Nolan was here and my wife, Sonny, who's the co-producer and the editor. And they could see Clay Reed's face. I could not see him. And they said he just he his jaw just dropped open and never shut during the whole movie. And uh, he and he kept muttering things. I did hear him mutter things like, oh, my gosh, I should have done that. Or, oh, my God, how did they get that? Or, oh, no, I forgot that. Or things like that. And that literally did happen. And uh, after that, he was very demoralized. After he saw that cut of the film, he was extremely demoralized. I mean, he even said it to me. And my point was not to demoralize him. Well, maybe a little tiny bit of me was like the, my empathy perverse it was. But because I wanted to prove that I was could do this. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't because I dislike him, because I, I actually like him. And we get along. But it was to show him that, yeah, I'm not in the film industry yet, but other people have perspectives and other people can do things. And they should not be discounted. And then his movie is now apparently never going to come out. So, and that has nothing to do with me, incidentally. It's because of the permissions that I was describing earlier. So he miscalculated on that, whereas I was more thoughtful in how I wanted to structure everything. So when the movie was shown to the people at like the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Andrew Migliori and, you know, Graham Oninger at uh, the Egyptian Theater, they invited us to come in. We didn't rent anything. We never rented any kind of screener place or anything. We were invited by film festivals or whatever, or we were invited by the Egyptian, in that case, down in L.A., to do the world premiere. And so it was very well received at the Egyptian. And uh, like Curtis Hansen was there, the director, and I was posting about this on my Facebook page the other day, and several other filmmakers were there. And, and I got into like a scrap online about the movie with Don Murphy, the producer, you know, who did Apt Pupil and Natural Born Killers. Uh, he and I got into like this real serious scrap, I mean, where he threatened to like completely shut down the premiere like days before it was happening. It was like high stakes drama here. And the reason was because he was friends with Chris Beaumont and Chris Beaumont, uh, the son, he signed a release and all this. And he understood that we were doing these dual films, but he wanted Clay Reed's film to come out. And he felt that we were stepping on Clay Reed's, although Clay did not feel that way. Clay told me that there was plenty of room for two different takes. So I felt good because he had given me his, you know, his uh, okay before he even saw our cut. And, uh, and what happened was, uh, Chris now thinks that he thinks, he thinks I duped him into signing this release, which is absurd. And so as a result of that, you know, he refuses to watch the film, which I wish he would watch the film because the film is, is an homage to his father very much so. And there is nothing bad. In fact, it's all good, but it is balanced. You know, there were issues that Beaumont had that I do bring up and, uh, to, and I do it in a way where people can make their own decisions about, did, what do they make of how he handled these things in his life? Because I couldn't just leave them out. If I was going to be true to the man and true to the reality, I had to mention certain things that maybe people don't want known, but were actually known by the group. For example, one was during Beaumont's latter part of his illness, um, he had a mistress and this sort of thing. And so, you know, I mentioned that, but I also mentioned that Beaumont himself was racked with guilt by this. Okay, Roger Anchor is the one who points this out. And uh, so I, I wanted it balanced, but I couldn't just ignore that fact because of uh, other things in the film that were pointing to it. So Chris, unfortunately, has never seen the film. I hope one day he will, you know, because I've tried to reach out to him since then. And he just he doesn't want to do that. But, you know, it's 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 a film that I think is important. 
about a person who's important. And especially since this other film is probably never going to come out now, it's especially, you know, insightful and important now that people understand, you know, this backstory about one of these people who's influenced all the, all things so much. And so when the world premiere happened, it was very well received. You know, we had Earl Hamner Jr. there, who was one of the writers of Twilight Zone. You know, we had George Clinton Johnson, of course, and we did a whole thing at the Egyptian, you know, a panel um, moderated by Mark Scott Zacree. It was with my wife and Sonny, myself, William F. Nolan, George Clayton Johnson, um, and uh, John Tomerlin. It was great. The place was packed. I mean, there were like 400 people there. And so it was very well received, and it's been shown all over the world now. Um, and one reason I wanted to point out um, that we went with Beaumont first, it came together faster, and during all this time when it was being released, et cetera, Forey became very ill. <clears throat> and then I thought, well, maybe it's maybe we need to just wait and see what's going to happen with his health. And this is more ill than just the the accident he had. He started getting like he started to fail. His health started to fail. So I thought it wouldn't be appropriate to put out the film until he either rebounded or he passed away so that we would know what was going on with him. And uh, then he did pass away. And so it gave us a natural sort of conclusion to his story. And I thought after a period of time, you know, like a, about a year afterward or so, I said, I think now we can go back to completing Forey's film, even though he's not here to see it. You know, at least we can conclude his story and we know the, the ending of it. By that time, there had been a couple of movies that came out about Ackerman ostensibly, but they really weren't. I feel I did not care for them. Uh, I was not going to denigrate anybody, but they were not what I felt Ackerman deserved in the way of like you know, attention to his career and the things he had done. And um, so those had come out and come and gone. And and I thought, well, we're probably not going to get any play now because they, even though we were first, we were not released first. But then we go ahead and release our film, and it was extremely well received. And in fact, it won the Rondo Hatton Award for Best Documentary um, in 2014, as I recall. And so, you know, people love that movie. You know, and, we, and that's also been shown all over the world. And we had a premiere for that one. We were invited down to the Aero Theater in Santa Monica, and it was very well attended. And, uh, you know, we had Bill Warren there, who was a Ackerman, you know, uh, assistant for many years and <clears throat> a film historian. He sadly passed away just recently. And we had uh, Diane O'Bannon, uh, Dan O'Bannon's uh, widow. She was there um, because um, Dan <laughs> O'Bannon had briefly lived with Ackerman as a teenager. Dan ran away from home. This didn't make it in the movie, but he ran away from home and he ran to Los Angeles. He was like a teenager, 15 or 16, took the bus out. And the only person he knew of who lived in Los Angeles, he said was Forrest J. Ackerman. So he looked him up and called him and went over there and stayed at Forrest's house until with Wendane Ackerman, Forrest and his, his wife, until his money ran out, which was about two weeks. And then he went back home. And, uh, but as a result of that, he got to know Ackerman and all this kind of stuff. And it's pretty funny. He had a lot of, you know, he had a soft heart toward him and, uh, he said he was a great guy. And, you know, that sparked his real enthusiasm for getting into film as well, you know, because he was, had been out there and gotten a taste of this sort of thing. But, uh, so that was a very well received film as well. And we're pleased with it. Now we're working on a third film, which we were working on shooting around that time as well. And it's called Image Reflection Shadow. Artists of the Fantastic. It's very different. It has nothing to do with all of fandom or writing or the Twilight Zone. It has to do with the imagery 
and why it resonates so much with us subconsciously or collectively of artists such as Hieronymus Bosch and Peter Bruegel the Elder and artists like this all the way to the current times, you know, and you could put H.R. Giger in there and Alex Gray and Robert Vinoza and, you know, all these other artists that we interviewed, J.K. Potter, and why that imagery is so haunting and powerful. And so it's going to be a little different. It's not going to be what I call the onion layer, you know, like Ackerman and Beaumont. It's going to be a voiceover narration, uh, probably me, explaining in a travelogue style how, because we went all over Europe for this for about a month and the United States to interview all kinds of people and uh, artists, visual artists about this. And we shot all this footage of the H.R. Giger Museum and Gruyere and all these other places that we went to talking about the Mietze technique for doing uh, fantastic. And we interviewed Ernst Fuchs and we talk about uh, the entire idea of fantastic realism, which was an art movement that Fuchs was involved in and basically describes a lot of these people. It's kind of like, um, it's almost like visual element of magical realism is how I would describe it. That's going to be a totally different thing, but I think it's something that people are very enthusiastic about when I explain it to them. So that's what we're finishing up now, and it's going to be out this year. Hey, where's the best place for people to keep up with you and your projects? Well, I'm pretty active on Facebook, so you can look me up by Jason V. Brock, my name, on there. I'm also on Twitter, uh, but our website is jsunny.com, and that's J-A-S-U-N-N-I.com. And uh, that's a blog and this kind of thing. We have a store and you can buy these things or uh, write us a note if you want to communicate or anything like that. So that's probably the best ways to reach us. We're pretty available online, you know, so that's how I would tell everybody to do it. And I also have a digest called Nameless and it's um, (laughs) published intermittently, let's put it that way, and by us. And it's uh, about magical realism and the esoteric and the macabre and even sometimes the philosophical or political. So that's out there. And uh, we've done three issues. I'm working on finishing up the fourth and fifth right now. We've had a lot of good people in there. You know, we've had John Tibbetts, who's a friend of ours that works at KU, which is uh, University of Kansas. We're going to have a piece by Ramsey Campbell and one by Jessica Amanda Solomonson and some other people and Daryl Schweitzer and all these other writers. And of course, Nolan works with me on that too. He writes things for it. And S.T. Joshi is my basically the managing editor. Um, I'm the publisher and the and the founder and all that. So that's out there. And then I have a lot of writing that I do. I'm pretty widely published. I did a book called Disorders of Magnitude. It's an academic book, but it's about horror and, you know, the whole scene of horror from like Mary Shelley to the present in literature, film, and um, that kind of thing. And I also did, uh, I'm going to revamp that as my plan and uh, expand it. And I have a new collection coming out, actually. I had one called Simulacrum and Other Possible Realities that came out a couple of years ago from Hippocampus Press. And I'm, they are putting out my second one, and it's called The Dark Sea Within and Other Macabre Revelations. They're putting it out. And it should be out, I think, sometime like in late spring or some, you know, somewhere around that time. Well, very cool. Thank you so much, Mr. Brock, for your time. I appreciate this. Hi. 
All right, we're back, and we're talking about The Intruder, and uh, we just heard a whole lot about Charles Beaumont, the author of the book, and he also adapted his own work, much better at adapting his own work than I'd have to say that John Irving is, because I could actually see a lot of parallels between the book and this. He really did do a great job of adapting his work, keeping the very important things. The story flows, I think, very quickly. I mean, what this movie's, what, 70-some minutes long? It flies by. It really goes well. And what he chose to keep and what he chose to get rid of were perfect. I mean, what we're missing from the book really is an investigation of Adam Kramer's background, more about a professor that he had uh, named Max Blake, who basically was one of these blowhard professors who would kick back with his chosen students and started to outline this whole thing of what would be a perfect society. And, you know, somebody could come in and they could manipulate people like this. And Kramer kind of got it into his head that he was going to do that. And he writes to Blake several times throughout the, the book and tells him of his progress and he even admits at one point he's like you know these letters are going to be my diary to you they're going to be my diary of what's happening in Caxton so we do get a little bit of Kramer's inner monologue that way but I think they play it smart to stay outside of his head in the movie and just kind of show us and Shatner does a good job of showing us what's in Kramer's head, showing us that emotional turmoil. We get some of those great Shatner moments where he'll have those conflicting emotions on his face. So they did very well with that. And um, they definitely go into more of his sexual dysfunction when it comes to um, his past relationships with women. But again, I think that Beaumont did a great job of just kind of giving us that one scene, giving us that moment with Ella and then with Vi and he goes a ton into Vi's background and we really don't need that for the film so I again just a really really well done job of somebody adapting their own work I mean Beaumont's expertise when it comes to television writing really shines through in this I really like that Kramer uh, is just a veneer in the movie I think that's one of the best things about this movie is that it doesn't psychologize him too much you know we don't get to see too much behind this uh the slick veneer you know we get him to crack and break down but not knowing exactly who's pulling the strings behind him and not knowing exactly what his end game would be uh is really it really works for this film because i think it's a lot more ominous they give a really good there's a moment in there so there are these two reporters who are investigating kramer and at one point they go and talk to kramer's mother and she basically just gives her whole life story. And by doing that kind of gives more of an insight on what kind of environment Kramer must have grown up in. And that's interesting. But what's even more interesting is that once these two reporters leave, there's a reporter and a photographer. And once they leave, the older reporter starts talking about how he covered the Nuremberg trials and everybody was really excited for the Nuremberg trials. They really wanted to see these Nazis get their comeuppance. And then when that noonday sun was shining on these Nazis and you got to see just how sad and pathetic and weak these guys were in real life compared to the power and and the glory that they had when they were these military leaders, he said that by the end you just wanted it 
to end. You just, everybody was tired and nobody really cared anymore just because they got to see behind the mask. And I thought that was a very insightful thing. That's the only thing that I would say is missing from the the movie. And it's not missed. It's just one of those like nice moments. And I have to say, if people haven't read The Intruder, I would really recommend this. It is a tremendous book. I was say, you get to see behind the veneer. And I, I agree, I would have liked to have seen it more. But I'm not sure it's entirely necessary, if that makes sense for the film. Because I don't know how I don't know how you would go about really doing it successfully outside of the way that they already tried. Yeah, I think it's a different movie. You know, that becomes more one of those kind of biopic type, yeah. uh, super heavy on the emotion, super heavy on the um, political, you know, finger waving. I feel like there's something about this. Maybe that maybe one of the reasons this film did translate so well to watching it now and to like I keep kind of saying me projecting what's happening now at least through my viewing is because he is a veneer. So it's easier to place, you know, something on him, even though he stands for these things. But uh, I have to just laugh because you were, uh, the year before he was an intruder, uh, Shatner was in judgment at Nuremberg. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's a funny link, which was kind of one of the reasons why I watched judgment at Nuremberg. Is that bad that I wanted to see that mm. movie just for him? That's funny. Just for Shatner, <laughs> just for Shatner. It's never a bad idea to watch something just for Shatner. He was one of Columbo's best nemesis both times that he was on. And he's the best Star Trek captain, even if Eugene Bird doesn't agree with me. I don't know about his rock climbing scene in the one he directed. Oh, um, no. That's a bad scene. That's a bad scene. That seems great. That seems great. I feel like we didn't have enough. We weren't making enough jokes about Trump. I think we sound kind of defeated, don't we? I mean, if it were me, I would be making uh, terror at 30,000 feet jokes, but that's just me. It feels like we've died three deaths, you know? It feels like the night of the election was the first death, the day that the Electoral College did exactly what they were designed to prevent was the second death, and then today being Inauguration Day feels like the third death. And how many times is my heart going to break? And I don't know how much more I can take. I mean, I just have to keep hoping that there will be a defeat of Adam Kramer at some point in the future. For me as a millennial, and mind you, you know, being, you know, in, in my mid-twenties, uh, I, I can't, I don't feel defeated, and that's not because I'm a Trump supporter. This film came out in the 60s. Since then, we've had massive steps forward in civil rights. Massive steps. Mind you, steps that could have been taken earlier, but regardless, massive steps in civil rights. And so obviously this film was coming out at a pretty contentious time in the country's history. And now it, this is, I would contend, this is another contentious time in the country's history for similar reasons, but not exactly the same. And somehow our country made it through that contentious time. And that is a, that was a more contentious time for a number of reasons. Namely, an entire section of our country was being railed upon, segregated, and taken down as and not even treated like human beings, treated like lesser human beings. And our society made it through that, as this movie shows. So, you know, act I mean, feel I understand the feeling of defeation and being defeated with what's going on now, but one has to be optimistic that we can get past this. I'm not saying yeah. be okay with the situation, because yeah. I understand being upset. 
But yeah. one has to be optimistic that this is this is not permanent, and that's our. Thankfully, our system has allowed that. I I, there are the, countries where this where people rule for fifty years, and you know. Yeah. The only time I've, I felt exactly where you told me, and, I, and I've been feeling pretty good, uh, actually, was, uh, you know, Obama's speech, his final speech, his final address uh, left me feeling, you know, r- really optimistic in a lot of ways in the long run. I do think there's something um, – I don't know if it's if, if it affects what age anyone is, but I do think I can speak from my own perspective about if you have children, especially if they're young right now, and this happens, it, it felt a lot. It, this cut, you know, far more than when I was twenty-one. I think when um, the election was taken away from uh, Gore, you know, because I was able to just kind of shrug that off, even though I was upset in the moment. But I kind of, you know, I could just get on with things. But this feels – there's something about, like, looking at your, your – there's more life that you brought in. You're kind of responsible, and there's something very troubling about it because even though I do deep down think four years from now everything will kind of go back on the road of progress, it, it's not guaranteed, you know? And we've just been – and when you fight for rights, and I think especially gay and lesbian rights have you know been the ones that have been for for the most in the last few years, you see people being given these key roles – in Trump's government who don't believe in those rights and it makes you go, are we going to take rights away? That's not something we're meant to do. You know, once you've fought for your rights, we're not meant to take them away and force you to have to fight again. That just, that's the part that seems unfathomable and might not happen. And I hope not, but it, it could. And I think it's that it could, that is the, the hard part to grapple with. The thing that gets me is just that this whole thing feels like it's a bad skit in that you're going to pepper the cabinet with these people that stand for exactly the opposite of what their job title is, you know, that, that the guy who doesn't believe in vaccinations is going to be your, your, your vaccination guy, you know, the surgeon general, that the person who wanted to dismantle the department that he's supposed to be leading, you know, four, eight years ago. It's just, it's craziness. And it, it feels like a bad joke that you're going to do this. And it's like, you know, I, I tweeted the other day that Larry, the cable guy is going to be the, the poet laureate of the United States. That's, that's the level of, of bad jokeness that this is at. I mean, this, you know, it's like, I'm surprised that Gallagher doesn't have a position in the cabinet as well. You know, it's just, it's terrible stuff and it just gets worse every single day. And like every day I go to bed angry, I wake up angry and I'm angry all the time. That's my secret cat. I'm always angry. And it just, it, it, it's not the feeling that I want, especially when we did have those moments of hope. I mean, God, you brought up the gay rights. I mean, that they announced the Supreme Court decision during Pride Week. I mean, New York almost exploded with happiness. You know, just to see the the footage of the Pride Parade after that announcement, it just made my heart sore. I was so happy that finally we're treating gays and lesbians like real people so that they can make their, their lives as miserable as we are by getting married. Go for it. What is it? Yeah, it's pretty amazing that a, that a term is as simple as just equality. It's like not asking for more. Just like just like if somebody says they're a feminist, that doesn't mean they hate men. It could just mean they want to be equal, uh, equally treated. It doesn't seem like it would be a hard thing to grant. And yet, and and look, granted, and and I think you said it perfectly. Look, America is still ahead of many other places, and especially on the scale and the size of this country, it's it's remarkable. You know, I come from New Zealand, it's a very small country. All the countries they always kind of uh, tag as well. 
look at Finland, but it's like, you know, no one lives in Finland. <laughs> you know? So you can make quick progress in countries like that. So America does make huge strides, but yeah, I just, am, I'm very curious uh, what will happen. And this is the first time we have had a, it's not really a Republican versus Democrat issue. This is really about a person who doesn't fit either of those molds and how he got elected in a way that's unprecedented and no one knows what's going to happen. Sitting here, wondering what's going to happen, worrying about what's going to happen, possibly starting a family in this climate. It, it, it worries me, but at the same time, there's always Canada. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, I guess you know you're right. It's like terrorism. You can't give into it. You have to, you, yeah, you know, you, you have to go, hey, look, we yeah, go on. Yeah, we can't allow ourselves to be we can't allow ourselves to be consumed by our petty differences any longer. Like we as a country need to if we really don't want to stand for this, we do have to come together. And while the people in the film didn't like come together because they they kind of just like, mm, OK, the Kramer guy was he was going too far. We do need to come together and like understand that the only way to make this better is to not by making it worse amongst the community at large does that make sense i don't know if that makes sense it does yeah i think it does and there's some real bravery like i was just uh, reminded the one character we you know we barely touched on this it was the joey green character the one african-american kid and i think i read that he was a real student i think he was like a football player he wasn't an actor and he just kind of played a very real but there's a, the moment where he decides to head out to the mob it's moments like momentary acts like that that get remembered, you know, like in real life, in a in a real world, those the beating somebody takes, or the the fact that that guy very well, you know, he must have known there's a good chance he could have been strung up in that moment, and he just walked out anyway because he thought it was inevitable. But facing that head on, I wonder if that also changed the crowd. We're all just discussing like, you know, why didn't they just lynch him? You know, there's something about the way he walked out there to take it, face it head on rather than running and screaming. There's something about it that's very powerful. And I feel like that's maybe what black lives matter at times is about. Um, even if I don't always fully understand everything about it, my, you know, from my point of view, Mike, like hearing you say, like you wake up angry, you go to bed angry. I can't even begin to imagine what that's like. That's because... just podcasting. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's waking up completely under the gun going to bed completely under the gun and trying to wrangle cats throughout the day that's what podcasting is. <laughs> uh, i just i really enjoy this movie and i feel like if more people had seen this movie maybe more people would have realized that what's going on is not okay but i think that the people that are in the crowd in this movie vastly outweigh the people that are like tom mcdonald's character in the film and that's obviously what happened so well, how would Trump have viewed this movie? I mean, you saw that Errol Morris clip where he, you know, he watched Citizen Kane and he reacts to this movie about a character very similar to him. And he sees the parallels and sees that he's isolated himself with wealth. And at the end, Errol Morris says, so if you could give any advice to Charles Foster Kane, what would it be? And Trump just says, get yourself a better woman. It makes me wonder what he would say if he watched this movie. Would he say, oh, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have, uh, you know, you should have kept lying at the end? Or would he have, you know, what would, it, what would, you, how do you, how does he see himself? It's something that I'm, I find really conflicting and I wish I could, I wish I could know is how does Trump really see himself? I and mean, we all know that it's about ego. We, we know all these things, but does he, does it, does it, does he ever really see behind that? Uh, I don't know, that narcissist well, personality. Well, and it's like, like we've said about, uh, Shatner is Kramer in the film. I mean, it's a veneer. Yeah. Like I, I've, you know, I've heard, I've read, I've read interviews. 
oh, Trump is actually like this in, in behind the scenes. I don't believe that for a second. Oh, no. Yeah, no, neither do I. I, I don't think Trump is like he is publicly in behind the scenes. I feel like we are seeing a, 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 a act, just like in this film, how Adam Kramer is an act. That is not who he actually is. That is what he is doing for a purpose, which is, by the way, huge credit again to William Shatner in this film for doing that so convincingly, doing the character, the character within the character so convincingly. Yeah, Trump's a Democrat, has been a Democrat most of his life. So yeah. who is he? We don't we have no idea. Yeah. And that's the same thing that you you feel with Kramer in this film. Like, is he actually like a horrible racist or is he just saying the racist things because it benefits someone that he works for or again, one of his constituents or God knows what, but you know, that, that to me is again, it's who is Trump? You know, I, you know, the, the citizen Kane line. Yeah, of course, Trump's going to say, get a better woman. (laughs) Grab him by the pussy. You know, I'm surprised it wasn't just some horribly stupid thing, which exactly what it was. Oh, I need a better woman. Of course he said that. Of course he did. (laughs) Why is anyone surprised? (laughs) Whether it's, it's Pence or Putin, it just always feels like Trump's working for somebody else's agenda. It doesn't even feel like it's his agenda. It feels like he's the puppet on the string. And I don't know who the person is that's pulling those strings. And maybe we'll find out, maybe we'll never find out. But it, that's the thing that gets me is like, you mentioned like who's Kramer working for, is he working for his own ends or is he working for somebody else? And we don't know. We don't know if there's somebody else that is, is behind there. And we don't know what kind of power structure is behind there. And that's really the scary part for me when it comes to Trump is that, he can say these horrible things and do these horrible things and he can find so many like-minded people that are going to, he's going to surround himself with that are just like, Oh yeah, this is fantastic. And even with those people, it's like, well, who's really the the person that's putting money in your pockets? I don't think that it's from the bottom up. I don't think it's the constituents. I don't think it's the voters and the taxpayers that are, you know, putting the, the money into the pockets. I think there's something else going on. And, you know, we all know that that uh, who runs the world. It's girls. Girls run the world. <laughs> Tax returns. We'll never see them. I, I want to believe in this film that that I think it's a more interesting film. If you assume that Shatner is working for someone else and that he doesn't believe what he's saying, I think that that's an inherently more interesting film because it 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 introduces a little bit more of a complexity to his character. If that makes sense, because then you're like, well, he's just he's just saying this stuff because he's being told to say it, say it. But look at how convincing he is when he says it. He's he's convincing himself that he believes that on top of everything else. We clearly didn't want the um, the boy to be uh, hung. You know, that's clear in that moment. I don't think that's a racial thing or him being a good guy. I think he knows that if that happens, oh, that's one step too far for the cause we're trying to stir. If we do that, we're portrayed as, you know, for what we really are. And that undoes everything. So there are moments where they, they make it a little more complex. What He, he doesn't always strike you as uh, uh, the just straight up and down uh, clan racist. There's something else. I think you're right. It is more interesting that he this is maybe just an agenda, you know, that he bought into. Who knows? I assumed that it was just an agenda. Yeah. And Trump's could be an agenda, too. We don't know. We don't know why he's in love with Putin. It's 
money that makes the world go round. And it just seems like this whole idea of him being president is just another money-making venture for him. That he won't divest his his companies, that he has all these interests around the world. It just seems like, okay, this is a great way for me to line my pockets. This seems like a kleptocracy. I'm really rich. Well, on that cheery note, I want to thank everybody for listening, and I want to thank my co-hosts, Elric Kane and Chris Statue. Chris, what have you been up to lately, sir? Well, uh, there's this little collaboration that you and I have been doing called The Kolchak Tape. You can check it out over at kolchaktapes.com. Mike and I are embarking on the journey of looking at the life and times of Mr. Carl Kolchak, which includes TV movies, the TV show, and the 2005 reimagining of the famous Night Stalker franchise. So we're doing that over at ColchakTapes.com. The first episode dropped last week on the 45th anniversary of the original airing of the Night Stalker TV movie. I am also the editor-in-chief and co-host of CultureShock.com's CultureCast, where we talk about movies and rant about things that... uh, we want to talk about. So you can check us out over cultureshock.com and the culture cast is on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and all podcast apps, both Android and iOS. And how about you, Elric? Are you preparing to enter the zone, my friend? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, this, it was all intruder till today, but I, I have to say, having done a lot of podcasts, and I always love the prep we do for this particular show, there's no movie more intimidating that I can think of than Stalker to do something like this, to try to decode, to go into, I've seen it twice. I'm going to, in my past, I haven't seen it in 10 years. I will watch it, uh, you know, probably next couple of days and then start reading. And it's, it's, it is, it's kind of intimidating. It's one of those movies that is uh, just so unique and it's also very uniquely Russian. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to, to delve into that one with you. Yeah, I feel pretty terrible because I have not seen very many Tarkovskys, so this is really foreign territory for me. I'll say, I think you're going to have a nice, have you watched it yet, or are you about to? Because I'll say what's cool, if this is the first kind of real Tarkovsky, it's kind of like a thriller. First time you watch it, it, it's not like the slow, boring Russian film like a lot of his other movies are. This one really is kind of structured like a thriller that first time you watch it. And I think, you'll, I think you're going to enjoy that part. I'm, I'm actually kind of looking forward to uh, revisiting. Where can we uh, catch up with you, Elric, when people want to hear your dulcet tones some more? <laughs> when they want to see, then we want to hear me, uh, my mostly being sarcastic about uh, horror is uh, Shockwaves is our show these days, uh, doing doing nicely over uh, for Blumhouse dot com, and uh, we just had a new episode. Uh, we just kind of came back after a couple weeks off, so we've got a, we got a lot of fun stuff planned uh, for the coming. Um, year it should be fun 2017 well we'll see <laughs> if we all survive <laughs> they might put us in the camp sooner than later <laughs> oh come on we're all white they're not gonna put us again. yeah he's got a point <laughs> <laughs> come on as long as you're not a sympathizer so. <laughs> yeah exactly so be careful what you say mike this podcast could be used against us in a court of law yeah or in he's, a too, he's too optimistic yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks again for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. And moreover, please keep fighting the good fight and helping to make America a better place. The fact that I have such power in terms of numbers with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., I think it helped me win. 
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.